Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the very first Castrol Motorsport News Podcast of 2022. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and this week we'll be going through what's been a surprisingly newsy start to the new year in supercars land. We'll unpack a wild start to the new era in the World Rally Championship and much more. Joining me from across the garage is a teammate that I'd share all of my Sydney Motorsport Park setup data with, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you and how was your off-season? I'm very well, thanks, Andrew. Handy to have that SMP data from you, considering uh, mm-hmm. going back there yet again. I've uh, got plenty of it. <laughs> had a uh, nice little off season. Always good to have a little break in that. But um, as you know, actually, when I'm not uh, not writing books for V8 Sleuth, I'm, I'm often reading them. So one of the highlights mm-hmm. of my uh, my summer was that uh, my friends at Penguin actually sent me a great book uh, to have a look at called Endurance. The uh, Toby Price oh. autobiography that'll be out soon. Um, Here we go. Yeah, I'm pretty much halfway through it. What an amazing, uh, amazing career and life he's had. It's it's really an incredible tale, and uh, he actually writes really well. Toby, it's <laughs> it's a massive credit to him. Um, you, you should have a read because he's uh, he's very good with a pen. I can assure you I've read that book in great detail many, many times, and I uh, I'm not sure that I will read it again. But it is an amazing tale, and it was a. Um, it was a very cool story to write and it's one of those things where uh, when I look at the book now, which is coming out, I think Feb 1 is the publication date, when I look back at it, I go, yeah, this is a good book and not because I might have given him a little help writing it but because it is just an amazing story. Like Some of the stuff that bloke's been through, everyone knows about the Dakar wins but there's a whole lot more to it. So thank you for that plug. I wasn't expecting that, Stefan. I'm glad you're enjoying the book. I, that's, I came that's prepared. Very good news. That's 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 great. What a, this is a fantastic way to kick off the uh, to kick off the new year. Um, yeah. Anyway, you've you've thrown me now. I need to I need to get back uh, need to get back on track. So we haven't turned a wheel yet, and we've already got some COVID madness at work in supercars. Stefan, the Newcastle Five Hundred has been postponed, pushed back to some point later in the year due to the city's issues with the virus. Uh, crowd hesit- hesitancy was named as a contributing factor. People were understandably a little reluctant to travel at the moment. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk about you know issues with finding workers to even build the circuit in the first place uh, and how that's helped shape this decision as well. It will be replaced by the Sydney Supernight, 
which moves forward from the season finale slot and becomes the new season opener. And that means we'll effectively race at Sydney Motorsport Park in five of six uh, consecutive rounds across two seasons, which is pretty remarkable, really. Stefan, firstly, were you surprised uh, by the decision to postpone Newcastle? No, definitely not. It's unfortunate that we're starting a new uh, seasons of, uh, of podcast here talking about COVID. Um, really hoping we could just talk about car racing this year. But, um, mm. yeah, for all the reasons you just mentioned there, I mean, when you've got uh, hundreds of people involved in, in building one of these uh, street circuits and, uh, you know, big portions of those can be put in isolation in uh, at any moment due to the amount of COVID in the community, it's hard enough just to get uh, infrastructure like that built, forget about uh, actually run the event itself. So the combination of those logistics and then, as you sort of point to as well, the, the financial risk on, um, on ticket sales, they would have been looking, supercars would have been looking uh, pretty closely at how that was tracking as well. And, uh, yeah, I believe they were a fair way down on, on where they wanted to be with tickets. So um, they had to make the big decision to uh, – postpone, emphasising that, not cancelling it. They're adamant that they will run the Newcastle uh, event this year, but um, unfortunately it's not going to be the opening round. And and that's followed uh, the news earlier that uh, the Bathurst 12-hour, which was going to be um, in that part of the year as well, uh, has been pushed back to May. A little bit, a little bit of a different situation there with international travel uh, involved and then some quite low entry numbers, I believe, for that. So... There's still a big question mark on that whole event. But, uh, yeah, unfortunate because the last uh, two years were heavily COVID-affected, but we at least got the opening round of uh, these series away before or supercars away before uh, we started talking about this stuff. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, I agree it wasn't any great surprise. I think even from a pure optics point of view, it's a hard sell at a time. You know, what's a very tough time for a lot of people to then, you know, try and have these sweeping shots of, of full grandstands, um, you know, at, at a car racing event, which is what, you know, these street events are all about. It would have been a, a bit of a tough sell. But speaking of optics, you know, is, is SMP really the best outcome? Like, I understand that there will be, you know, some commercial realities to it and, logistical realities to it and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we, we've done five of six rounds there. We've done, depending on, you know, like I, I understand that it's very likely to be a two-race format. So that's going to mean we've done um, like two 250K races. We've done 12 of the last 13 races or something, if I've got my maths right, you know, at this one circuit. Surely that's too much SMP. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not um, ideal from – from a, a personnel point of view, all the people that have to go back there that spent a month of their lives uh, at SMP last year and and not for the fans either. But, um, yeah, it's just a reality of where we're at. I mean, it ticks the box of having the opening round in New South Wales, which is a contractual situation that Supercars is in, and it's, uh, it's a circuit that's permanent. It's there. It's ready to go. So I guess you've just got to focus on the fact that the, the positive is that the season will get underway on the date that it was meant to, we can still look forward to uh, going supercar racing in early March. There was talk about a straight swap between Newcastle and SMP as this news kind of broke. It seemed like a logical decision, but now there's not necessarily a strong sense that that's going to happen. Where can you see Newcastle slotting back into the schedule, if at all? 
it's kind of hard to predict how the calendar is going to shake out these days and the results of the races. Like, um, I think if it was if it was a slam dunk to be the final round, which does uh, feel logical, then they probably would have tried to announce that um, when they uh, announced the the change in the first place. So yeah, yeah, I think that there's a lot there's a lot of factors in it. I mean, the fact that they're trying to we had Newcastle as the final round in 2017 through 2019. And then they've tried to change it to be the first round. And if it's going to be the first round in 2023, which will be huge, like first Gen 3 race meeting for supercars, like a big, big deal. If you were Newcastle, you'd want that slot. But um, for a street track in particular to build that up as the last round of 22 and then the first round of 23, I don't know if that actually works. So there's a little bit of their knock-on into next year as well. Um. Yeah, so I'm sure all these discussions are currently taking place. I mean, there's just so much potential for change. Like if, if Wanneroo in WA is off, then does it open a May slot? You know, is a couple of months going to make quite a bit of difference to where Newcastle's at COVID-wise? Um, and then when we're talking about finales, like the the real wild card, right, is, um, is the fact there's still talk that Adelaide could make an extraordinary return yeah. on the 2022 calendar, which we talked about um Late last year, so there's uh, there's a lot of balls in the air, and uh, it's just uh, this is the new world we're in, where sporting fixtures uh, change in season. As a proud South Australian, what way is the wind blowing over there? You would have been over there over Christmas, I'm guessing. Where where do you think the election's going to land? Oh, the only thing worse than talking COVID is talking politics. So uh, <laughs> I reckon we just got to see uh, see how that rolls out and uh, and go from there. Well, just to recap all the COVID-related news, because there is, and I, I, I honestly can't believe I'm still doing this in 2022. This was meant to be an issue that 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 finished it on December 31, 2020, if I remember rightly. But as you said, the Bathurst 12-hour has been postponed from February to May. The New Zealand Grand Prix has been cancelled altogether for just the sixth time in the best part of 70 years um, because they can't get the talent through the MIQ system and into New Zealand that they want to take part in in, in that race. Uh, and as you also hinted um, hinted about, you know, the WA border is still closed for the foreseeable future, so there's a cloud of uncertainty around the Perth Supernight, currently scheduled for the end of April. Uh, New Zealand could well still be an issue for supercars. So unfortunately, there's still a fair bit going on in terms of that COVID stuff, which um, is just getting pretty old, unfortunately, but unlikely to be going away any time soon. All right, there's a Fair bit to get through, so let's keep this party going, uh, Stefan. Supercars has a new CEO. Long-time Supercars man Shane Howard is set to step up from the COO role on February 1, although I did note he was already quoted as a CEO in yesterday's <laughs> Newcastle announcement. Did you spot that one? I did, actually. I did see that. Either way, Sean Seamus stint has been cut short by five-odd months because he was initially meant to continue until the middle of the year, Stefan, we had our first real opportunity to interact with the new sort of supercars regime the other week on a press call with Barclay Nettlefold, the new chairman, uh, Shane, Mark Scaife was on the call as well. I, I have to say, you know, I, I sort of felt like there were some positive signs there. I think Shane's appointment is a very solid one for supercars. Um, I really rate that the new owners have avoided the temptation of hiring an executive from footy or something thinking that they have some magic formula for success or some silver bullet that just doesn't exist in the motor racing world. And we see that from time to time. Um, Shane's a racing guy and it sort of feels to me like this appointment means that he can focus on racing stuff and the board, which is kind of heavily stacked with, you know, people from the investor world and people that have skin in the game as part of this, as part of this new ownership can focus on, on funding 
the whole thing. Do you agree that, that Shane's the uh, the right man for the job? And what did you take out of the roundtable the other day? Yeah, I think Shane is, is a great choice. I, I was probably a little surprised, to be honest. Um, yeah, he's been in that supercars uh, sphere for more than 20 years now as the COO uh, for quite a while and has had a couple of interim stints as CEO. But uh, they've tended to, to bring in, to parachute in executives from elsewhere um, to actually fill the role. And uh, when you look at the way the structures changed, the way the ecosystems changed there at Supercars, now you've got Barclay Nettlefold, who you mentioned before, as the chairman. It, it makes more sense to structure it this way. I mean, Shane Shane is a real, as you said, a real racing person, which I think as a fan, that's, that's what you want to see. But he's someone that the team's... And all the stakeholders know and trust, which is um, what, what they would want at this time when there's so much change there with the ownership and various parties now on the board and, and in the ownership structure. Um, and Shane's just got great relationships with, with governments and, and everything like that. So I think Mark Scaife actually said uh, the phrase he used in that uh, teleconference we were in was safe hands on the wheel, which uh, I think was a pretty uh, pretty accurate statement. What did you take away from what, Scafe's role is actually going to be to me it sort of felt like he's going to act as sort of the motorsport advisor you know as a board member to the board um, he was even presented as the guy that will be overseeing the new look commission which will include representation from all of the teams not just elected team representatives in the future that'll be chaired by Neil Crompton still so Mark's exact role with that wasn't entirely clear what what, what was the sense that you got from where he's going to slot into the to the new ecosystem as you put it yeah, well, uh, we uh, public facing we see Scafe as as a Fox Sports commentator and analyst. So I thought when he logged into the uh, teleconference the other day, he was going to lob in some questions for uh, for Barclay and Shane, <laughs> but uh, we were lobbing questions at him. So yeah, definitely that made his his role a little clearer there. Clearly, he was um, he was uh, involved heavily in stitching this uh, deal together with some of these parties. Um, that now owned the sport, so he was always going to end up in the structure somewhere and he's going to be on the board and on the commission, um, a bit of a go-between there for uh, those two uh, those two entities. So, yeah, I mean, the, the commission, as you know, has been really uh, changed with all this. Um, there'll be a rep from every single team on that, um, so there'll still be commission meetings like we've had, but... Um, yeah, how much weight their uh, their decisions and their recommendations actually carries when it goes up to the the board. Uh, I guess we'll wait and see how it all actually works uh, when it uh, when we start getting through the year. Yep, we definitely definitely will. Um, speaking of team representation and team owners, we have a new one in supercars. Uh, team Sydney is no more. Jono Webb has sold up, and Premier. Racing, led by champion drag racer Peter Ziberus. Boy, I do hope I've pronounced that right. Uh, joins the series as a new owner. Um, I've spoken to Peter a few times now, uh, Stefan. I didn't really know a lot about him before, but he's very friendly and very enthusiastic. I think a bit of enthusiasm is exactly what that team needs. What do you reckon? Yeah, I wish I had, I had uh, Ziberus uh, from some of my Scrabble games over Christmas. That would have been a beauty. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, like I did have a brief chat with him last week on the phone as well. hadn't uh, had anything to do with him before, and you can't help like fall into the optimism that he's that he's got going on, and and the enthusiasm yeah. is probably the better word for it. Uh, it's great to see when someone comes in like that, especially 
to go and buy a team that was really struggling, really needed some investment um, and some energy. Um, already the cars are getting a, a big birthday at Triple Eight. Um, but clearly he's got a lot to do. I mean, yeah, these race teams are about people and he needs uh, he needs to find good people to run the cars um, and a base as well. Um, we're expecting, yeah, all that to roll out pretty soon. But um, what we do know at the moment is he's got um, Chris Pither and Gary Jacobson as his drivers, mm-hmm. um, which has sort of been one of the biggest headlines, clearly, that um, Fabian Coulthard is out of a full-time ride, which uh, is a shame for him. But when you look at um, Peter Zibris's situation there, he's, he's putting a lot of money in. He's, he's spending it trying to get the, the team up and running and the car's up to scratch. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you can if you can bring a driver in that might, say, bring 600 with him rather than take a few hundred out, like you start to understand that's where the economics are at and... Yeah, it's it's good to see Chris actually back in because he, he works so hard at uh, hard at the game, and both drivers are Super Two Series winners. We shouldn't forget either. So um, yeah, I don't think those cars will be straight up the front, but they'll be looking to put together basically the team through the season and then uh, try to get some results when Gen Three comes online. You'd reckon? Yeah, I guess it's kind of takes them out of that sort of treading water holding pattern that it feels like the team's been in for the last couple of seasons. So, yeah, it will be interesting. And, and, and you know, Chris has got a whole lot of experience and, you know, he's shown some pretty impressive flashes of speed. Remember when he sort of subbed in for Richie, was it, at GRM at Winter? Yeah, yeah. Was that? Yeah, like, you know, I think he finished 15th or something that day and you go, oh, yeah, this bloke, you know, he's been driving these cars for a long time and he certainly kind of knows how to do it. Um, as for Fabs, as, as you said, um, he's won't have a full-time seat for the first time since 2007, I think it is. Um, there's been a lot of talk about where he could end up as a Bathurst driver. Um, you know, he obviously he's quick, uh, experienced. The one-plus-one outcome is that he lands <laughs> at Walkinshaw and Ready United with Chaz Mostert. You know, we know he's fast. It's always good when someone's come straight out of the main game. Uh, we saw, you know, how well that worked for Lee Holdsworth at Bathurst last year. But, Stefan, do you think this this kind of left foot braking thing, which is known to have issues with fuel consumption at the endurance races, could be could be something that a potential that potential Bathurst suitors may take into consideration? Well, I thought you were making a cheeky one plus one reference to the old structure of DJR Team Penske. <laughs> I was oh, I was putting that like together a... and getting an eleven, which is obviously Anton's car these days. This is a this is a this is a shift storm moment oh. where I wasn't <laughs> didn't realise how clever I was actually being. Yeah, like um, it's it's definitely the way uh, we've seen it go under this um, format that we've had for more than a decade now, where you uh, can't pair your main drivers. That anyone who falls out of a, a full time ride. Um, is the number one draft pick and a slam dunk to go in a really good car. Um, as you say, there's a bit of noise around him going with Chaz. That's a logical place to uh, place to put him with uh, Lee Holdsworth um, coming back into a full-time drive with Grove Racing. But uh, there are some interesting, unique factors with Fabian. Um, like it's well documented that um, from a karting accident he had really early on that his, um, his right ankle with the way I think uh, it's fused, um, he can't right foot brake in these cars. Um, so the left foot brake's always been the way he goes and uh, that does hurt you a bit on fuel consumption, um, which is important at Bathurst. But, you know, Greg Murphy left foot, used to left foot brake, so he went pretty good at Bathurst. So uh, I'm, sure, yeah, I'm sure Fabian will end up in a good car and, um, and they'll make it work. 
yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, someone that can go that quick, as we've seen, that's becoming the key to winning the race is having having your second bloke that can go as close to as fast as possible as your first bloke. Um, you know, in those lunchtime stints makes a big difference, as we saw last December. We've um, we've seen Gen 3 testing sort of properly kick off now um, with a couple of days of running for both the Mustang and the Camaro at Queensland Raceway. I think last year a lot of the testing was more geared towards getting the cars to Bathurst and making sure they didn't break down while they were being presented to the public for the first time. Now they've stuck some anti-roll bars in them and a couple of other bits and they're, they're having a bit more of a go with them. They were meant to be testing this week as well, um, but that's been pushed back to next week. Uh, Stefan, the rumour mill on why that is uh, has been up to its usual business. Uh, you've um, Your Gen 3 nose for news is pretty much bang on the money, so I'll throw this one to you. Why are we having a week off? As you said, like um, they really didn't do much um, much running, even you know we're talking about serious running or not. They they basically did some brief shakedowns last year and then went to Bathurst pretty cold. So this was um, last week was the first time they got to really run the cars in anger. Um, and the official line as to why this week's not happening is they're waiting on extra parts arriving. And I believe they did. Um, they had a bit of an issue with the front brake caliper uh, cracking. Uh, on the Mustang in that uh, test last week, um, and you know, thankfully the driver felt the issue and uh, and pulled it in. Obviously, you can lose a car with braking problems, but um, yeah, that's just one of those things that happens in, in testing, right? You've got to send the part back to the supplier and and get some new bits for it. So um, yeah, I, it's it's delayed them a little bit, but I don't think it's a big drama. This this stuff happens, and I mean, the way the testing schedule was, I was sort of surprised that they wanted to do it. In consecutive weeks because when you think about it, they would have only had three working days to turn the cars around and, and learn everything they needed to off the first two-day test to go and do the second one it probably makes some sense to uh to go and put some space in that um yeah it, it was one of the other interesting parts of the the testing last week was the fact that uh zane goddard got to drive uh, both the cars um there was five drivers across the two cars but he was the only one that did drive both and he's um not currently uh contracted to any team having lost his full-time drive with matt stone racing but um geez he'd, he'd have his hand up for any opportunity at djr or, or even triple eight if there is a, if there is a sniff at a bathurst seat you'd reckon you would think so well you know let's wait and see how many cars triple eight are running at bathurst and what opportunities alongside fairly well-known drivers there could be in wildcard entries, we'll see how that plays out uh, as the year progresses, I think. I'll just run through some news from elsewhere. There's been a bit of preseason drama in MotoGP with Jack Miller currently stuck here in Australia after testing positive to COVID-19. Um, he said late last week he is asymptomatic and was initially expecting to miss the Ducati preseason launch, which was scheduled for the 28th of January, but Ducati has since pushed the launch back to February 7 so that he'll be able to get back to Europe and attend uh, in sports cars. The Wayne Taylor Racing Acura will start next week's Rolex 24 at Daytona from pole after Ricky Taylor held off Richard Westbrook in a thrilling roar before the 24. Uh, Taylor and Westbrook even made a bit of contact on the last lap, which sent Westbrook into a spin and top spot went to the number 10 DPI entry that Taylor is sharing with Philippe Albuquerque, Alexander Rossi and Will Stevens. Albuquerque's driven that Holden that Zach Brown owns, hasn't he? Am I remembering that right? Was yeah, I think was was he in it when it ran out of fuel and Fernando Alonso was allegedly standing That's in pit it. lane with a helmet on making uh, yes. making racing car yes. noises? 
That is that is exactly right. Yep, that's I, I knew there was some some connection to that car there. You are one hundred percent right. That's what happened. Uh, in TCR Australia, Honda has recommitted to Tony Delberto's uh, program. Um, tell you what, when TD gets back in the car at Simmons Plains in a couple of weeks, he's going to uh, he's going to have a bit to to try and remember because he hasn't actually driven a TCR car since well raced a TCR car at least since Sydney Motorsport Park last May. It must be because he missed the Bathurst round because of his uh, supercars commitments with Dick Johnson Racing. So, bit of time out of the Civic for old TD. Uh, and the 32 brand new Carrera Cup cars are currently being handed over to their new owners at Sydney Motorsport Park as we speak. And apparently, they're putting down some pretty impressive lap times from the whispers that are coming out of Eastern Creek at the moment. Even in a global pandemic, Stefan, they just can't stop that series selling all those cars. That's remarkable. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to have any effect on property prices that all these blokes have decided to buy Porsches instead, but <laughs> something's got to cool that down a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I don't know how much you saw of the WRC on the weekend, but what a what an amazing way to kick off their new season in Monte Carlo. Uh, Sebastian Lowe beat Sebastian Ogier in a brilliant battle of the goats. Um, it was Pretty remarkable, came to a fairly remarkable end with a puncture for Sebastian Ozier on the penultimate stage that kind of swung it back in Loeb's favour. Uh, I jumped on the phone with our good mate and WRC expert Tommy Howard from Motorsport Network to get uh, his thoughts on the season opener. Tommy, welcome back to the podcast and what a way to kick off the new World Rally Championship season. Talk us through what must have been a pretty uh, remarkable rally to cover. Yeah, I think... um I think this will be talked about for generations to come. It was one of those one of those events where um, I think yeah, it will just go down in history as probably one of the greatest rallies of all time. Actually, it was just simply uh, amazing. Really, I think everyone has been crying out at some point to see Loeb and OJ go head to head. Yeah, you know, given their careers kind of overlapped each other, with you know the rally fans didn't really get to see it. Twenty eleven was probably the only time where those two really went at it and that was when OJ was still very much a young pretender and hadn't won any world titles so this really was the first time and perhaps the only time we will see these two go head to head on their favorite event that they know so well and uh it was simply astonishing like it was you know the commentators saying whoever wrote the script for this rally deserves an Oscar and I completely agree it was just astonishing I mean OJ obviously set out on Thursday night winning the first two stages and uh, and there was still a few question marks over Loeb as to can he still do it? He's 47 years old. The M Sport car's new. All the cars are new. Like, can he do it? He's been at the Dakar for the last 12 days and he's flown straight here. He's had one test in the car. Will he be on the pace? And in the first two stages, on, well, in fact, on shakedown on Thursday, the first run, he was quickest. And you're thinking, this is odd. This is going to happen. And on Thursday, he was uh, second fastest to to OJ in the in the first two stages. And we thought, yeah, this, this is going to be great. And then on Friday, he rattles off four out of uh, four stage wins out of six, and he's and he's got a lead um, on on Friday night of nine point nine seconds over OJ. And even he said, I, I can't quite believe I'm I'm doing this. I think he was still sort of doubting whether he'd still got it. And and yes, he's definitely still got it. Um, and then on, on Saturday, um, they went at it again. At one point on Saturday, they were on uh, level pegging, had the same overall rally time at stage 10, joint leaders, uh, which just you just 
just a marvel at it, really. And then uh, Saturday afternoon, OJ sort of found another gear, um, hit the afterburners and managed to get pull out a 21.1 second lead that he would take into Sunday. And we thought, well, okay, that, that's it. He's, he's going to do this. Um, extend his lead again on Sunday morning, but then <laughs> another twist in the tail. He uh, had a front left puncture on the penultimate stage and his lead was completely wiped out and uh, was facing a 9.5 second deficit going into a final stage shootout. Uh, you, you couldn't write it really. It's just uh, just unbelievable. And then in the final stage, um, OJ has a jump start and, the, and has a 10 second penalty, um, which is a, an absolute blow. But he didn't know that at the time and, and took nine seconds out of lobe on the final stage. So if the penalty wasn't there, he would have lost the rally by 0.5 seconds. It was it was a remarkable drive. He even said, I was so over the limit on that stage because I had to give it everything to try and beat him. Uh, but ultimately, uh, Loeb and his new co-driver, Isabel Galmiche, uh, was the simply supreme and, and won the rally. And uh, as, as you can imagine here, the, the French crowd were extremely um, happy with that result. What's the most remarkable part of Loeb winning this rally, Tommy? Is it, you know, you rattled through a few of the factors that basically should have him not as a contender, you know, relative lack of running in these cars, the fact that he was at the Dakar about five minutes ago, the fact he's nearly 50 years old and he retired a decade ago. What's the most remarkable part of it from your perspective? Uh, I think it, I think it is just that he still has that desire to win and just to, I think the element of OJ brought something out of him this weekend because let's be honest, they, they have had their sort of uh, disagreements in the early parts of their career but actually they are quite good good friends and we saw that a lot over the, the weekend but there is that element of like rally fans have always been saying who is the greatest of all the time is the OJ is it like it's always been that this big debate and this was the chance to really sort of see it in a way but I guess OJ was let's be honest he was unlucky um, to lose uh, that puncture was you know there's nothing you can do about that really that was just as he said, fate, and, uh, you know, it was just one of those. But you're right, Loeb, the fact that Loeb still has this desire uh, and this skill to do it, I mean, the fact that, you know, he's still doing that after, you know, you know, he's still in demand. Teams want him. Like, it, that is a measure of the class of this bloke, the, the fact that teams still want him and still believe in this 48-year-old that he can actually do the business. And, yeah. <laughs> he did. I think it's. I think that's it. I think it's the fact that he just still wants to do it, wants to win, wants to go the extra mile. That's what I think is most remarkable about though. There was some pretty notable firsts there. You know, the first female co-driver to win a WRC round since '97. I think it is first Loeb win since 2018. First M Sport win since 2018. Did it have sort of a you know? Was there a a, a historic sense? Um, to the result, did you feel from the uh, from the service park on on the Sunday evening? Yeah, it felt it felt like we'd witnessed something really special and something that may never happen again. We might never see uh, a battle like this. We may never see Logan OJ go head to head again. So it felt like one of those seminal moments of the WRC in a way because like everyone has been wanting to see something like this uh, for a long time and. It finally happened. Um, but yes, going back to Isabel, we should really talk about her because that was remarkable, really. Um, she's part of, has been part of Loeb's gravel crew for some time, but never competed in the WRC before. So she made her debut at the age of 50. And he's obviously 47 going on 48, which is um, 
yeah, a remarkable situation that you've got. Um, she, uh, her day job's a maths teacher, so it's quite an interesting combination. You had the, the maestro and the maths teacher together, and uh, she was just simply supreme. She's been competing in the French Rally Championship for years, but this is a different uh, level to step up to the WRC and to, to be calling notes for the nine-time champion and you know for the first time and to win the event. Um, remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And you're right, it's the first female co-driver to win a WRC event since Fabrizia Pons in 1987 when she was with Piero Liati. Um, so it's quite a, quite a moment. And yes, going on to M Sport, those, those guys uh, deserve all the credit they get for this because they've had a really rough uh, few years. Um, they don't have the resources of Toyota and Hyundai, so they are, they're always kind of battling a little bit. But um, this year, Ford has stepped up its, its funding a bit and Ford Performance has been involved quite significantly with this Puma and we all know how good they are have you know given what they did with the Mustang in supercars so we know what they can do mm-hmm. and they built an yeah. absolute weapon um it really is everyone was expecting it to go well but I don't think they were quite expecting it to go as well as it did and to have three of the four in the top five at the end goes to show what a sterling job they've done and it's been 18 months of work on that car because they really kind of sacked off last year and put all their limited resources into focusing on building this Puma for 2022. And yeah, it was uh, an incredible effort for them. Mark Rushbrook from Ford Performance was here to, to see it. And there were some engineers sent from Ford uh, US to, to help the team work out, work through the rally. So there's a lot of support from Ford. Um, they're very, very happy. Spoke to Mark at the end of the rally and he was uh, beaming with, with, with the decision to, you know, to, up their support of WRC. I think it really works for them. And certainly when they're trying to promote the Puma, great way to do it. Um, so yeah, it, it really, there's a lot of storylines and yes, the, I think, uh, yeah, to sort of round it off, it's the seminal moment for, for WRC and M Sport. Speaking of these, uh, of these new cars, did you manage to get out on a few stages and, and have a look? What's it like covering the Monte Carlo rally and what were your first impressions of these uh, new generation cars? Didn't get to go and see them too much but what I did see um, they're, they're, they're pretty good like, I think that's the funny thing was that just the battle between Loeb and OJ everyone kind of just forgot about the whole uh, new regulations and new cars and hybrid <laughs> boost and everything everyone just that was the team to just get just get forgotten about because you, you can't from the outside you can't really see any difference like the sound of the cars is still the same. in fact the sound is noisier the cars are noisier now than they were previously and uh and Oliver Solberg would say that because he could, couldn't hear his uh, co-driver, not just because of an intercom problem, but because the car was so loud. So, um, yeah, it was, they're, they're really good bits of kit, actually. And when they're boosting and they've got 500 horsepower, yeah, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty awesome and, uh, and spectacular <laughs> to watch. There's, there's definitely, they haven't lost any of the, the spectacular uh, vision that you get. Uh, there was a lot of fears that the, these cars were, you know, not going to be as good as the previous generation. But I actually think you'd be hard to sort of find the difference between them. Yes, they they were a little bit slower, but when you're seeing them boosting, they're faster than the previous generation. So it's, it's one of those sort of uh, counterbalance uh, situations. But they are spectacular. Don't get me wrong. They, they really are proper bits of kit. And uh, they've cost uh, millions of millions of pounds to develop. So, um 
Yeah, I, they're only going to get quicker. Uh, when the teams develop these cars, you have to remember the previous generation had five years of development. So but once these teams uh, get more out of them, there is a genuine thought that they will eventually be quicker than the previous generation. Is it fair to sort of say there's not much to split the Ford and the Toyota on pace, do you think, or did, or did one or the other have the edge? Ford really came out of the box fast, um, but Toyota over the weekend really caught them up. So um, it's interesting. I th- Yeah, you're right. I don't think there's too much between them, but this is a specialist rally, so it's, it's going to be hard to know until we really – you need a couple of rallies under your belt just to see the pecking order, but – I would suggest at this point there's not much between them. Um, obviously, Hyundai is very, very far back at the moment, but we'll get on to that. But yeah, the, um, the t- those two, I think, at the moment are are pretty close, which is good for the sport because we you, you, there is a fear, you know, there was a fear that someone might come out and absolutely, you know, smash it and there'd be absolutely no competition. But the regulations and the way that they've homologated this car has been quite clever in a way in that... Um, all the teams had to submit their homologations to WRC six months ago and, and to, so the WRC could make sure that no one was really getting a, a massive advantage in a way. So like if they, if they saw that someone had, had interpreted the rules in quite a unique way, um, they were sort of quite keen to uh, ensure that there was parity, shall we say. So, um, yeah, uh, there, I still think, there's a lot more to come from those those cars, so it's, it's difficult to say. But, yeah, I think it's a close fight at the moment between us two. Well, as you touched on, what on earth is going on at Hyundai, mate? Like, was there lack of competitiveness expected anyway? Is it rectifiable, do you think? It was expected. They, they were the last of the three manufacturers to commit to the new regulations, so they were the last to start building on a uh, – start building their car, designing their car. So they were always playing catch-up and – but I don't think anyone thought it would have been as bad as it was uh, at Monty, which is, um, yeah, it, uh, yeah, difficult, difficult uh, situation for them to be in. They've just had probably a rough few months. You know, they've lost their team principal, Andrea Adamo. He left for personal reasons, and they don't have a sort of uh, a team principal at the moment. Um, the car's sort of definitely behind on development reliability is the biggest problem they they actually had some pace in that car uh once they got everything working um they won a stage on sunday um but yeah they've got they've got a lot of work to do they really have um, i mean there was just sort of the the list was as, as the as the deputy team director julian monse said that you know the list is big and we have got uh, we're gonna have a massive debrief this this week and then there'll be you know they've got a month to, to the next rally so they've they've at least got time to try and address some of these problems but they have got they have got some work on their hands i mean it was there was problems with hybrid there was uh a set of front damper failure for, for neville um then there was the uh the fume issue which was pretty scary um for oliver solberger's he had uh, some exhaust fumes coming into the cockpit of his car for two days, and at one point uh, he got this, he lost concentration because of it and ran off the road, which is a pretty scary situation in a rally. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was that was a really tough uh, situation for the Solberg. And as we know from the Bathurst Twelve Hour, we know what that situation can uh, and how that can unfold and how dangerous that can be. To the point where I think a regulation was brought in a, a year after, a few years after that Greg Crick incident, where 
um, this this couldn't happen anymore. They managed to put the filters into the system so that uh, there wasn't any any sort of exhaust fumes getting into the cockpit. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, they've got a lot a lot of work to do. But if um, they're not, you know. You know, remember these, these, this team won the manufacturer championship two years on the row, 2018 and uh, sorry, yeah, 20, 2019 and 2020. So they know how to they know how to build a car, and uh, they will get there. But boy, have they got uh, some work to do. Now, Tommy, the WRC is enjoying a heck of a revival at the moment, and as a lifelong rally fan, I love to see it. But there's a couple of things I do want to get your opinion on. Firstly, is is there any sort of concern in the service park that? Two drivers that are both technically retired can go out and blow everyone away like that. Should we be seeing fresher, younger talent able to mingle with the likes of the Sebastians more consistently? Do you think? Yeah, I think I think I agree with you to some degree. Um, it, you're right. the The fact that these guys can come in and just dominate um, is it does sort of shine a light on, on where are the the, the next generation. Um, but you have to remember, if we're just looking at this event, you have to remember that this is this is a specialist event, and uh, not many not many people without local knowledge, who say, have won this. The fact that the two Sebastians have won this rally sixteen times between them now uh, kind of shows you um, what uh, you know, just how good they are on these roads. Uh, they are. You need to be something quite special to to match and beat them um so uh, yes you're, you're absolutely right there there are there is obviously a decent wave of talent coming through but i think it's it's probably unfair to measure them on this event when you've uh, given how specialist it is but it would have been nice to have seen um some of the younger talent get up there but let's just remember Last year, Elfin Evans pushed OJ all the way to uh, to a title decider, and he did that the previous year as well. So he has shown that he, you know, that they are, there is talent out there to push these these real top guys to the edge. So, and um, with Kelly Robin Pereira, once once he gets up to speed with this car, uh, Thierry, Tanak, uh, and Elfin, and even Craig Breen, these guys will. Uh, well, eventually they will get to a point where I think they can they can challenge these uh, these two. But the Logan Oje, it's like it's like seeing Schumacher and Hamilton sort of both in their sort of prime going after. These two are just simply the greatest drivers we, we the rally will ever see, and it's perhaps unfair to expect some of these young guys to just be able to beat these because I don't think we'll see a couple of drivers like this uh, ever again. They're just simply in a different planet. Absolutely. There's uh, no doubt about, about that. My other sort of, well, not not complaint, but, you know, the one thing I did notice, there was a great video that uh, was posted, I think, on the Autosport socials of, you know, a, a hairpin corner in one of the stages, and there was there was a good crowd there. There was flares and fireworks, and it looked really cool, but the car sort of rockets into the corner, turns the corner and drives dead straight out of the corner. Have we lost the sensational sliding WRC cars, Tommy. I know that you know straight is fast, and the Lobes and Ogers of the world have really redefined the craft of driving mm. rally cars. But is it a bit of a shame that we sort of we don't have you know the big Scandinavian flicks and all that sort of stuff in the sport anymore? It is, but I don't think you'll ever see that come back again. I think that was just the nature of of, of previous generation of cars. They really have technology has moved on, and it's just quicker to be more 
uh, circuit racing focus with the driving style of these cars now. You, you don't see anyone doing the sort of Scandinavian fleets. The only place you'll really see it now is Rally Sweden on the snow. Um, so it's just one of those, I think it's just unfortunately, it is sad. It's just one of those things of nature of WRC and the way things have moved on. Having said that, Monte Carlo this year was the driest sort of on record and there was actually not a lot of snow. There was only really a patch of, say, five or six kilometres on the sister on stage. And boy, they were sliding on that because they were running on slick tyres because they didn't. there was no point <laughs> running the uh, the studded because there was you just lose time on all the dry tarmac. So they, they can still slide, I can tell you that. But um, yeah, it's... <laughs> Go and ask Oik Tanak. He slid into a bank and uh, it was his rally over. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, no, it, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But I, I think those days are over, unfortunately. And, but we have to just sort of, I think we just have to marvel at, uh, while there isn't any sliding, what they're able to do and the speed that they're able to go through these corners is, uh, is simply phenomenal. Yeah, no, I do agree, and it is just fantastic to see the World Rally Championship, you know, getting the airtime, getting the attention that it deserves because it really does have some of the uh, the most skillful drivers, you know, on the face of the planet taking part in it. So that's a very good thing. Tommy, love your work. Thanks so much for your time, and um, let's have a chat after what will hopefully be a nice and snowy Rally Sweden in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Uh, we'll see We'll see, um, We'll see. see how that will pan out because um, obviously no – no OGL load there, so we'll get uh, we'll get an interesting fight. I know again, who who knows who's going to win that one because uh, you just simply can't predict for the moment. How good's that? That's what you want to hear. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Tommy Howard there, legend of a bloke and doing great things for the WRC through his coverage for Motorsport Network, which you can check out at motorsport.com or autosport.com. Stefan, I think it's time for our first Castrol Stars of the Week for 2022. Who has kicked off your star-studded season? Well, Tommy's obviously covered it off really well there, but I can't go past Sebastian Loeb. You know, nine-time champion, not in a full-time WRC drive since 2012 to come out in a new era um, and and beat the other goat, as you put it earlier. Um, Yeah, I think he's star of the week material every day. Yep, I do agree. I'm going to stick with the WRC theme, but I'm going to go a little left field and give it to Sebastian Ogier, not because of his great drive on the Monty Rally, but because of his, I don't even know how to describe it, interesting interesting description of the full boost mode on the new hybrid WRC cars. Let's have a listen. The team did a great job and... uh... And yeah, even if I think at the moment the hybrid feels a little bit like first time sex, where it's like very intense, but one second and gone. <laughs> it's, it's a good start, so let's hope in the future we can go further. Well, I don't think I can follow that up with anything too meaningful. So, Stefan, I reckon we might call it for the day. Thanks for joining me and thanks to everyone out there for listening. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe and give us a nice rating wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, 
WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.